So good to be with you this morning. Good morning, my name is Shane, I'm part of the ministry team here. Now I say be with you. I know we're a little bit apart and it might be weird for you, it's weird for me too. I was so glad that uh, Greg organised, just to give you a bit of a look of what's going around the room here, because i got to say, I never realised how much I would miss getting able to speak to you. In fact, this week as I was preparing this talk, I actually found it a little bit hard to get motivated because I wouldn't be seeing uh, people like I normally see. You know, as I'm speaking most weeks, I look over here and I see my family in the front row and I see the balls. I look down here and I'll see uh, Karen and I'll see Warwick and I see my old boss, the Abbots, there. And I look here, there's Pete and Haley down the front and I see Jim and Helen over there. And I see James ready to give me a high five at any time. And I see the pipers and it's great. And I love sharing and uh, almost conversing over this sort of stuff. You know, I love it when you talk back to me. This week, I'm like, "Uh, well, it's a good passage and it's an important thing to do, but they're not going to be there. And they're going to be staring at this camera and it's going to be kind of weird. I'm going to tell you, I'm really grateful that I had that emotion this week. It gave me a little bit of empathy for the ancient people of Israel who found themselves in exile ripped away from their homes in another space, they're like, oh. singing our praises and stuff like that, it's, it's too hard. They actually wrote a psalm about it, a psalm that I'm going to say, and I'm happy to go on record, was butchered some years ago by the group Bonnie M uh, when they sang these words, but don't hear them, hear the words. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, those are trees, uh, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? These are some of the words that uh, were written at the time for people who were away from their normal worshipping community. Uh, maybe they had some of their people with them, but they were away from their normal space. The city of Jerusalem, the temple, the holy city, all the things that God had said, I'm gathering to you to this space and this will be the center spot for your worship. And they said, how do we even go on? How do we preach our sermons? How do we sing our songs? How do we do our stuff when we're so dispossessed? You've got to understand, for them to be dispossessed is to feel significantly cut out of God's plan. These are people who trace their origins back to their forefather, Abraham, who was promised land, offspring, and that they would be blessed and be a blessing. And right now they think, well, we don't have our land. We've been dispossessed. Okay, our offspring are here, but we don't feel very blessed, and we're a blessing to no one. This life is terrible, and we ain't singing nothing. So they sing this. Now, it's funny, they kind of have the exact opposite situation to us right now. We keep getting told, stay at home. Their situation was, you can't go home. They've been kidnapped. Imagine all the Sydney-siders came down to Wollongong and tore us away from our beautiful spot. And we go to Sydney and they say, eat some fried chicken. I'd be saying, how can I eat fried chicken when I'm not near Chico's? It won't work. That's, That's not how I do fried chicken. And so these people in a much more pronounced way than fried chicken. In, I must say, even a more pronounced way than me missing you this morning, felt cut out from God's plan and they said, how can we go on? And so surely at this time they're waiting for a word word from God. 
Well, God is good and he speaks. Through his prophet Jeremiah, in the reading we've heard this morning, the first few verses tell us that Jeremiah, who was actually in Jerusalem, in the holy city, writes them a letter and sends the letter to them. I wonder what they were thinking they might hear from the one who is still in the blessed holy city whilst they're in exile. What words of comfort might they have anticipated? What words of consolation might they have anticipated? What words of there, there might they have expected? I don't know. But here in Jeremiah 29, we do have the words that they received from God through his prophet Jeremiah delivered via letter. Jeremiah sends this letter to the people, the people in exile, the people who are ready to hang up their harp, to almost give up on any joy in worship. And if I was to summarize God's first instruction to them, it would be this. And if you're taking notes, I want you to take this one down. Bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. See, these are the things that Jeremiah says, and you'll be able to follow along as the words come up on the screen. From verse 5, God says to his people, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God's instruction to his people who are far off, who are feeling they want to hang up their harp, oh, we can't go on because we've lost Jerusalem, is bloom where you're planted. Look, here's where you are on the journey, so build your houses. Here's where you are on the journey, settle in and be fruitful. Marry one another. Don't let the kingdom of God shrink by decreasing. Instead, because the kingdom at this time is the people of Israel. It's a physical thing. It's actual people, descendants of Abraham. He says, don't decrease. Instead, just like in creation, be fruitful and multiply. Keep going. Bloom where it is that you have been planted. You do not need to wait for the optimum soil. Here you are. So here you bloom. God says to Israel, look, your response might be, I'm done. I'm hanging up my harp. I'm going to wait for a better day. He says, trust me in your circumstance. Keep going. Bloom where you're planted. Be fruitful wherever you find yourself. This is actually a common story for the people of God, isn't it? From the very beginning, as God made a promise to Abraham, he said to him, go to the land I will show you. Abraham was faithful and went, but what a journey it was. And yes, he had some hiccups, but along the way, he was blooming where he was planted. He was faithful, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The descendants of Abraham found themselves in Egypt. Through times of famine, through times of slavery, the instruction to them was be faithful to your God, grow as a people, encourage one another in the Lord, bloom where you're planted. And so they were rescued from Egypt. They found themselves moving on a journey through the desert. And again, what was God's expectation? They would bloom where they're planted, that they would follow the pillar of, uh, that they would follow the cloud 
in the day and follow God as the, the flame in the nice. They would bloom where they're planted, go with him. And as they came into the promised land, they might have thought, great, now everything's settled. And God said, actually, there's a whole bunch of people here. Uh, they're a little bit scary, but I'm with you. They're called Canaanites. You're going to drive them out. And so as you acquire this land, I want you to bloom where you're planted. And that spirit certainly lived in the man called Caleb. Now we meet them in a time of exile. They've been thrown out of the land. They're in Babylon. They're a nation that's been kidnapped tormented some of them are in slavery what's God's instruction bloom where you're planted some years later the Messiah would come Jesus of Nazareth the one called Christ and at this time the people of God didn't have they were back in the land of Israel but they didn't run it they're under Roman uh, occupation and Jesus the son of man He describes himself, the humble one who has no place to lay his head despite animals having things like that. What did he do? As the perfect man of God, he bloomed where he was planted. He was fruitful, went where God sent him, preached the word of God, was obedient to the word of God and worked about building the kingdom and calling others to be kingdom builders. He bloomed where he was planted. The vintage church... You know, recently we've been doing a little bit of study in the book of Hebrews. The major focus of the letter to the Hebrews and John's uh, letter, Revelation, is to a church under oppression, a church where people are being killed for their faith. And what is the summary of the message of Hebrews and Revelation? It's not too far a stretch to say it's bloom where you're planted. Let your faith continue to bear fruit. Let your faith continue to see you walking with God, to working for his kingdom, to being someone who continues to meditate on his word, to see the revelation of Jesus and to move forward. And so I suspect even to this day, as we find ourselves in a different sort of situation, what do you think God's message for us is? Bloom where you're planted. Keep going, folks. And I just got to tell you how encouraged I am to be a part of, yeah, okay, so I miss everyone in this room, but I love that our church is able to continue to make sure that the word of God rings out from here. I love the messages, messages that are coming in of people looking for opportunities to help one another. I love that we are a people inspired by God's Holy Spirit to do exactly what God would have us do in this season. And what is that? to bloom where we're planted. For that's always been the way of the people of God. And I suspect here is the big reason why. You see, the people of God, be they Israel, who could not go home, or the people of today who are told to stay at home, might feel dispossessed. But God is never dispossessed. Whilst God's people might feel dispossessed, God is never dispossessed. God is the God who possesses his people and he holds his people safe. Now let's go back to the ancient times. Here you are wanting to hang up your harp and they tell you that a letter has arrived from Jeremiah the prophet and you think that's great. What would you want to hear from a prophet? What kind of words would you want to receive whilst you're in exile? 
Well, a little bit of study of Jeremiah tells us that uh, the people obviously wanted to hear, this is not going to be forever. The pain will end soon and we'll all go home and things will be much, much better. And so there are prophets, people like Hananiah, in the previous chapter, chapter 28, he announces to the people, in fact, actually interferes with Jeremiah's ministry and says to everyone, don't worry, folks, I've got a word from God. Two years, which seems like a long time to us, but for these people, that's a little bit quicker, particularly when you've been taken to exile. Two years and we're done. Everything will be fine. We'll be going home. Here's what God says through Jeremiah of people like Hananiah. Verse 8, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Times of crisis, there are things you want to hear. And there are also things you need to hear. And it seems that Hananiah and his ilk came along telling people what they wanted to hear. God says, don't be fooled. Don't listen to the lies just because they sound like good lies. I have not sent these people. They don't speak on my behalf. So what does God say? Well, famously through Jeremiah verse 11, he says these words. I'll come up on the screen for you. God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You see, God says, I know the plans I have for you. The plans I have for you. Why does God have plans for you? Because whilst the people of God might feel dispossessed, the God of heaven is never dispossessed. He holds his people. He's taken possession of his people. And of what he has taken possession of, he has a plan for. His plan is to bring them Hope, plans to make them more than they ever were before. Now to say, verse 11 that I've just read for you is an extremely famous passage of Scripture. In fact, I would wager, not that I should, that as I speak to you, I bet you somewhere in your home you might have a coffee mug or a t-shirt or a calendar or something that has this verse quoted. It's really important that we understand what it is saying to us. This is a verse that sometimes has been undersold. You might say, really? I thought it was oversold. No, it's undersold. Because this is a verse that some who uh, have adopted a doctrine called prosperity doctrine or a prosperity gospel have said, what God's saying here, it's seizing on the word to, to prosper you, is that God, because you're faithful, is going to make you wealthier and make you healthier. Life's going to get great. That's not necessarily true. I want to say I have so much respect for those pastors who have preached that message, have realized that it's in error and repented of a misinterpretation. To say that God's promise to his people is that by faith, your life will be great, you'll be wealthy and you'll be healthy and things will go swimmingly is simply a very narrow way to look at the experience of God's people. If you think globally... There are many, many faithful Christians 
faith the size of not a mustard seed, but of Mount Kemba. And their life is not necessarily prosperous. Their life is not safe. They are not wealthy. And many of them are not healthy. To think historically about the church, one of the things that's often said is the church is built on the blood of the martyrs. If prosperity doctrine is true, then how is it this hasn't worked globally and hasn't worked historically? In fact, a little tangent here, this church, this Anglican church, when this church was first constituted, there are actually three books that it was part of the constitution. There will be three books in the pews always. One, you can guess, was the Bible, so that people would be under the scriptures. The second, we still have today a version of it, was the Book of Common Prayer. This was a way that services could be structured to make sure that God's word was always heard and faithfully shared in a community. What do you reckon the third book was? If you guessed, oh, the hymn book, you'd be mistaken. The third book that was in every pew was this one. This is called Fox's Book of the Martyrs. This was a book that would be in every pew and certainly would have made you look like an absolute loony tune if you started preaching prosperity doctrine. As in my version here, there's about 407 pages that say, no, it's not about you getting healthy and wealthy in following God. For here are many, many people of great, great faith who indeed God has given a hope and in a sense God has certainly prospered. But it wasn't just about getting healthy and wealthy. So what does verse 11 promise us? What is God through Jeremiah saying to his people in exile? What hope is he offering them? What is he actually saying to them? If he's not saying, I'm going to make you healthy and wealthy. Well, let's see. Firstly, he says, this is actually not a short term thing. Verse 10, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. I haven't lived 70 years yet. Many of us haven't. Some of us won't. 70 years is beyond the lifetime of some of the readers here. This is beyond the individual. 70 years, this is not a short-term thing. What God does say is, you know what? You know what, Israel? You know what, my people? It's not just about where you walk. It's who you walk with. And so, yes, you might not be in Jerusalem, you're in Babylon, but I will walk with you. Hear these words from verse 12. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity." You see, in this long period, yes, it's kind of going to suck. You can't go home for 70 years. But where you are, whilst you're blooming where you're planted, I, the Lord your God, will be with you. I will walk beside you as my people. Because it's not just about where you walk, it's who you walk with. And a walk in exile with the Lord is better than staying home alone. Here's the next thing we want to understand. As God says, I know the plans I have for you, it's important that I quote the 1980s grammarian, the bantamweight champion of the world, the Marrickville mauler, Mr. Jeff Fennick. 
Jeff Fennick was a boxer in the 80s, and he famously at the time, though probably forgotten today, at the end of a fight winning his world title, he announced to everyone, I love yous all. Now, someone in your household is an English teacher. They've just fallen over because I've said yous. Um, you, could you just do them a favour and tell them, get over it. He's going to make a point. In some languages, there's a very clear you, singular, and you, plural. In English, we only know you. But at this time, use is particularly helpful to us. Because translated in Jeff Fennick speak, this passage actually says, I know the plans I have for use. God is speaking to his entire people. He's not saying, hey, you individual, I have a plan for you in just a short amount of time. If you trust me, I'm going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. He's saying, no, 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 no. As I've always had a plan for my people, a plan for my kingdom, I have a plan for yous. I haven't forgotten the plan. I'm taking you somewhere. There is hope. In fact, read against the rest of Scripture, what God is saying is, I have this amazing plan where heaven and earth will come together. We will be beyond all of these petty battles. My plan is that I'll send my son, Jesus. He will be fully God and fully man. And he will bring heaven and earth, creator and creature together. He is my ultimate plan. A plan to prosper you beyond anything you could ever imagine in this world. You see... You could read this passage in ancient times and think, what I want to hear from God is a plan for our escape. How do we just escape this? But God doesn't plan, promise escape. He promises endurance. In modern times, we might read this and sometimes say, yes, yes, God, I hear you have a plan for me. Give me prosperity. But God doesn't promise prosperity. He promises perseverance. So why is escape Lesser than endurance. And why is perseverance better than prosperity? Well, perhaps it's worth looking at one of the greatest yous. In fact, the greatest yous that ever lived. Jesus. See, Jesus is the perfect person of God. And as he cried, and as his sweat was like blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, what do you think he might have wanted to hear from God? Oh, I know the plans I have for you, son. Quick, no one's looking. Let's get out of this garden. You don't need to die. I have an escape. In fact, I'm going to give you a castle. I'm going to prosper you. But no. Instead, his his father's plan was a plan of endurance and a plan of perseverance. He led Jesus faithfully by his spirit to the cross and to his grave. Rather than giving Jesus an earthly kingdom, Jesus, by enduring in the plan of his father is called Christ the Lord. And no one can ever take that title. They put him to death for it once. And St. Peter in Acts says, and God raised him to show that they were wrong. Jesus is now the one crowned in glory. Jesus is the one who has demonstrated God's love in a way that it had never been demonstrated before. This came through persevering in God's plan rather than simple prosperity. This came from enduring in God's plan, rather than a cheap escape. Now, I guess the appeal of escape is, well, 
you know, particularly if you're, you're uh, an Israelite in captivity in Babylon, escape means, well, you get your life back. And that sounds good. Prosperity sounds good. I mean, you get your life back plus some stuff added to it. But here is where that kind of thinking undersells God's promise. Because God's promise is not just that you get your life back. God's promise, when he speaks to his people and says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for prosperity and plans for hope and joy, is not that there's going to be the same old you in the same old place with more stuff. No, but by enduring with me and walking with me, I'm going to change you. I'm not going to take you and give you more stuff. I'm going to change you. By my Holy Spirit, I'm going to conform you to the likeness of my only Son. I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to make you the precious person of my precious end time place. I'm going to change who you are. Oh, you'll still be you, but you'll be the most wonderful version of you. I'm going to shape you and change you, for I have a plan for you. Not to destroy you, but to make you more than you ever dreamed you would be. These are the words of love from our good and wonderful Father that he speaks through Jeremiah. Not cheap words that our ears want to hear, but enduring words that change eternities. And that's what God has done. And so today, as we consider our own particular challenge, and look, in what I say, I don't want to make light of the challenge that you might be facing today or the challenge that you indeed, in fact, all of us may face tomorrow. But it's worth asking a question of today's time. A friend of mine who, uh, I have such fond memories of this guy, once used to say, whenever a challenge would come, and this man almost died a number of times due to a significant illness, he would say, why has God put that in my backpack? And he'd say, why is that in your backpack? What he meant was when God loads you down with this extra challenge, he hasn't done it because he hates you. He hasn't done it because he doesn't want you to keep blooming where you're planted or walking. He's trying to teach you something and he'd say to me, why do you reckon God's put that in my backpack? So let me ask you, why do you think God's put this season in our backpack? I wonder if you forgive me a few moments to share some thoughts I've had on this recently. You know, in today's challenge, some of us are going to learn a new level of what it is to be restricted. Things like you can't go here, you can't go there, you can't gather in that way, you're going to be restricted. Some of us are going to learn superficial lessons on missing out, like, ooh, I missed out on toilet paper today. Some of us might learn more significant lessons on what it is to miss out. I wonder if these could be a blessing in our particular backpack. Let's do a little bit of history lesson together. You know, once upon a time they invented a big, wonderful jet airliner. And that meant if I wanted to go overseas, I no longer had to contemplate if my health was up to it, and if I could survive scurvy in a long sea voyage. I'd jump, I'd jump on a plane, and in a few hours, as I enjoy my in-flight meal and a few movies, I could be in the USA. Once upon a time, you might try to call me and miss me 
you'd have to wait till I got home and return your call, provided I had an answering machine and knew that I got it. Now we all have mobile phones. Never miss a call. Never miss the opportunity to reach out and talk to somebody else. Once upon a time, you had to think about, ooh, that TV show I want to watch, it's on at this time. Uh, we've got one TV in the house, and so I've got to be at that TV, win the battle for the challenge, and watch the TV show. But now, uh, I always remember Foxtel's slogan, watch it when you want it now. We have those options, because we wouldn't want you to miss out. Uh, some of you who know me well know this is one of my soapbox issues, so let it go if you, if you need to. But now we give every kid who turns up to the game a trophy. They didn't win a thing. What they won was a parent who had a car and a license and who drove them. They turned up and we don't, we shield them from the disappointment of losing and from the lesson of, you know what, if you work hard, maybe next week the result could be different. And an even more important lesson that even when you lose, your worth isn't challenged. Even when you win, your worth isn't added to. It's just a game. But we give everyone a trophy so that no one would feel like they missed out. There are a million different examples of these, and you might say, well, what are you getting at, Shane? What I'm getting at is I suspect as a people we may have developed some expectations that I won't miss out, that I'll always get a chance, that I am, dare I use the word, entitled. Here's the challenge of entitlement. I believe entitlement is a thief of gratitude and a promoter of fear. Entitlement is a thief of gratitude and a promoter of fear. The most simple way I can put this is for years, when I was a kid and my family said, Grace, I never understood why we were thanking God for a meal that mum cooked. So entitled, just like everyone's got food, don't they? No, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. We only have food because God is a God of providence. And yes, he's used a wonderful instrument in your mother to prepare this meal, but we thank God for it. It wasn't until I read a book of someone who was poor, who sometimes went hungry, who said grace out of true gratitude of, look what we got. Entitlement is a thief of gratitude. Entitlement is a promoter of fear. Why would I say that? Well, about 10 years ago, a new word in our language came out. It's an acronym. It's called FOMO. FOMO stands for the fear of missing out. Where does the fear of missing out come from? From when my expectation is that I will always guess. Shock horror that I should miss out. Perhaps in this season there's an opportunity for God to reset some of those expectations for us. You see, when we're fearful, we're not brave, we're not necessarily having the courage to interrogate reality. And that can challenge the Christian faith, where sometimes we are even uncomfortable with the very plain doctrine of Scripture that in the end time, all of us will face judgments. And as Daniel 12.2 tells us, some will be raised to eternal life, and some will miss out on that. The great terror is that some will face eternal torments. As this reality becomes less and less real for the Christian mind, our drive to share the essential news of Jesus, the only name under heaven by which we can be saved, will also decline. Let us understand that sometimes there is missing out. Let us preach the gospel that nobody 
miss out. Sometimes one of the challenges we have is as the gospel is brought to bear on our lives, rather than think about, oh yes, that sin that Christ is ready to deal with, let me repent of that and change. I'd rather tell you just how offended I am by you pointing out that I haven't made the grade. Let us not be fearful. Let us be a people who understand God's plan for us. Let us be people who interrogate reality and understand that, yes, there is a message to be preached, that all people might be saved, and that fewer people miss out. Let us be people who graciously hear rebuke so that we have the chance to repent, because it is safe to repent under the shadow of the cross and receive God's forgiveness and his grace. Let us let God load up our backpack today and show us that maybe the way we've been looking at life is just a little bit entitled. And just maybe we want to rethink the way we respond to the blessings that he has given us. Friends, Jeremiah 29 teaches us some amazing lessons. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstance, bloom where you're planted. And wherever you find yourself, However despairing things might look, remember these words from the Lord. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope, plans to give you a future. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for his love, his commitment to follow your plan. We thank you that in him there is not just cheap prosperity or an escape from challenge, but in him there is certainty for eternity. And so, Father God, I pray for every person now who is laboring under a difficult season. Father God, I do pray that you would bring relief. But above all, Father, I pray that you would build endurance, character, perseverance, and win perseverance, hope. For the hope does not disappoint. And so, Father God, we thank you that you have a plan for your people. And that plan has been made certain by the resurrection and the anticipated return of the Lord Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.